Chapter 9, The Dark Ship. They were being pulled slowly forwards. Their captors, whose shadowy shapes Haroon started to be able to make out as his eyes became accustomed to the darkness, were drawing the web along by invisible but powerful superstrings of some sort. Forward to what, though? Here Haroon's imagination failed him. All he could see in his mind's eye was a huge black hole yawning at him like a great mouth and sucking him slowly in. Up the creek, pretty pickle, had our chips, if disconsolately remarked. But the hoopoe was in an equally chairless state of mind. To Katam should we go, all neatly wrapped and tied up like a present, the hoopoe wailed without moving its beak. Then it zap, bam, foot, finito for us all. There he sits at the heart of darkness, at the bottom of a black hole, so they say, and he eats light, eats it raw with his bare hands and lets none of it escape. He eats words, too, and he can be at two places at one time, and there's no getting away. Woe is us. Alas, alack a day. Hi, hi, hi. Hi, 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 Miss Archibald. I'm it, back. It is so nice to have you join us. So, um, What's up with this guy who's eating the light? That's Katam Shud. Would you expect anything else from the big bad? No. What do you think? Do you think that our, our heroes are going to make it through this? I hope so. I hope so, too. Let's read on and find out. Yeah, maybe this is the book where all the good guys lose in the end. <laughs> I've been waiting for one of those. <laughs> yeah, me too. You're a fine pair of companions, and no mistake, Haroon said, as lightheartedly as he could manage. To butt the hoopo, he added, some machine. You swallow every spooky story you hear, even the ones you find in other people's minds. That black hole, for example, I was thinking about that, and you just pinched it and then let it frighten you. Honestly, hoopo, pull yourself together. How to pull myself together or anywhere else, but the hoopo lamented without moving its beak. When other persons, Chapwala persons, are pulling me wherever they desire. Look down, if broken. Look down at the ocean. The thick, dark poison was everywhere now, obliterating the colors of the streams of story, which Haroon could no longer tell apart. A cold, clammy failing rose up from the water, which was near freezing point. As cold as death, Haroon found himself thinking. Ifs grief began to overflow. It's our own fault, he wept. We are the guardians of the ocean, and we didn't guard it. Look at the ocean. Look at it. The oldest stories ever made. And look at them now. We let them rot. We abandoned them. Long before this poisoning. We lost touch with our beginnings, with our roots, our wellspring, our source. Boring, we said. Not in demand. Surplus to requirements. And now look. Just look. No color. No life. No nothing. Spoilt. This is giving me a very sad feeling. I know. Do you ever get the sense that we take stories for granted? Because I kind of do. I mean, definitely with, with reading. I mean, students, if you're listening right now, how many of you guys enjoy sitting down with a book on your own to take in a story? Right. Probably not that many, but I think that they probably did when they were kids. Yeah. You know, kids are begging their parents to read a story, just one more story, just one more book. Right. And at some point, where, where do we lose that? I don't know. I don't know. It well, seems like the, the, that our friends here are feeling the pain of that yeah, loss. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and it's sort of nice to see it articulated like that. It makes me think that, you know, maybe you should just read more often just for fun. I don't know. Let's see if they can save the day, though. <laughs> How this sight would have horrified Mali, Haroon thought. Perhaps Mali most of all. But of the floating gardener, there was still no trace. 
probably trussed up like us in another web of night, Haroon guessed. But, oh, what wouldn't I give to see his gnarled old root body running along beside us now and to hear that soft, flowery voice speaking such rough and infrequent words? (laughs) (laughs) The poison waters lapped at but the hoopoe's sides and then splashed suddenly higher as the web of night was brought to an abrupt halt. If and Haroon, acting by reflex, jerked their feet away from the splashing liquid, and one of the water genies attractively embroidered in twirly pointed slippers fell, from, to be precise, his left foot, into the ocean, where, quick as a blink, with a fizz and a hiss and a burble and a gurgle, it was instantly eaten away, right down to the tip of its twirly toe. Haroon was impressed in a horrified way. The poison is so concentrated here that it behaves like a powerful acid, he remarked. Hoopo, you must be made of tough stuff. If you're lucky it was just your slipper that fell in and not you. Don't sound too pleased, but the Hoopo said moodily without moving its beak. Who knows what's in store for us up ahead? Well, thanks very much, Haroon rejoined. Another happy notion from you. I was just thinking about global warming. Yeah? Well, we were just talking about... I know. Yeah. We were just working with a student on a project about global warming, and I guess maybe that's why it's in my head, but yeah. I am thinking about these people sort of looking out at this sea of stories and thinking how they have poisoned that yeah. water, and I and it, it makes me feel sort of some... the way that I feel some responsibility to um, climate change. Yeah. Or for I, climate change. W- the first time that I read this book, I, I did not know any of the historical context. Um, so I read it thinking that it was all about climate change. Mm. And I think that it's very possible to, to take it all in like that as an argument on behalf of, uh, of environmental, um, what's the word? Awareness and activism. Environmental awareness and activism. I'm going to, I'm just going to cut and paste that in so that I sound smart. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Where were we? Oh, uh, another, (laughs) another happy notion from you. But he was worrying about Mali. The floating gardener had actually been walking over the surface of this concentrated poison. He was a tough old creature. But could he withstand its acid-like power? Haroon had an awful mental image of Mali sinking slowly into the ocean, where, with a fizz and a hiss and a burble and a gurgle, he shook his head. No time for such negative thoughts now. The web of night was pulled away. And as the faint twilight returned, Haroon saw that they had reached a large clearing in the weed jungle. Just a short distance away was what looked like a wall of night. That must be the beginning of the perpetual darkness, Haroon thought. We must be at the very edge of it now. Only a few roots and weeds, most of them badly burned and corroded by the poison acid, floated on the surface of the ocean here. There was still no sign of Mali, and Haroon continued to fear the worst. A party of thirteen Chapwalas had surrounded but the Hoopo and pointed menacing-looking weapons at If and Haroon. They all had the same strange reversed eyes, with white pupils instead of black ones, bland gray irises instead of colored ones, and blackness where the whites should have been, which Haroon had first seen on the face of Mudra. But unlike the Shadow Warrior, these Chapwalas were scrawny, sniveling, weaselly-looking types, wearing black-hooded cloaks, adorned with the special insignia of Cult Master Katam Shud's personal guards, that is, the sign of the zipped lips. They look like a gang of office clerks in fancy dress. <laughs> <laughs> Scary, Haroon <laughs> thought. But they're not to be underestimated. They are dangerous, no question about it at all. 
these seem like these are like the typical the henchmen. These are the red shirts. Yeah, Mr. Doyle, when you're reading something like this, do you draw it in your mind or do you ever like sketch out what it might look like? I don't, but I like mm-hmm. to do that exercise in, in class and I'm like if someone would read me the story, like if I was sitting there at my house while someone was reading me the story. And maybe chiming in every now and then with yeah. a little tidbit or of intellect. Yeah, I think that I would probably take more frequent opportunities to sketch out what I saw in my head because that active reading strategy of visualization is a valuable one. Absolutely. Yeah. What are the Chupwallas going to do next? Let's see. The Chupwallas clustered around Butt the Hoopo and stared curiously at Haroon, which was annoying. They were... (laughs) (laughs) I'll say. They were riding what looked like large, dark seahorses, which seemed to be just as puzzled by the Earth Boy's presence as their riders. For information only, but the Hoopo revealed, these dark horses are machines also. But a dark horse, as is well known, is unreliable and not to be trusted. Harun wasn't listening. He had just seen that the wall of night, which he had thought to be the beginning of the perpetual darkness, was no such thing. It was, in fact, a colossal ship, a vast arc-like vessel, standing at anchor in the clearing, That's where they'll be taking us, he understood with a sinking heart. It must be the flagship of the cult master, Katam Shud. But when he opened his mouth to say as much to If, he found that fear had dried his throat, and all that came out of his mouth was a strange croaking noise. Ark! (laughs) He croaked, pointing to the dark ship. Ark! Ark! Where have I heard that before? So this is obviously a callback to Rashid losing his ability to tell stories. Do you think there's any deeper significance to it than that? or I don't know that there... I, I doubt it. What do you think? You doubt it? Um, I don't know. Let's see. I'm not sure. I'm, I, I don't know that yet. But I'm going to be... I'm going to sit with that discomfort and that not knowing yeah. and keep reading to see if it's clarified or not. S- sometimes it's, it's very helpful to just ruminate in discomfort. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do. Good. Gangways with railings slanted down along the side of the dark ship. The Chapwalas brought them to the foot of one such gangway, and here Haroon and If had to leave but the hoopo behind and begin the long climb to the deck. As Haroon climbed, he heard a piteous cry and turned to see the hoopo protesting without moving its beak. But, 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 that you must not take. No, you can't. It's my brain. <clears throat> Two cloaked Chapwalas were on Butt's back unscrewing the top of the hoopo's head. From the head cavity, they removed a small, dully gleaming metal box, emitting, as they did so, a series of short, satisfied hisses. And then they simply left but the hoopo floating there, its circuits disconnected, its memory cells and command module removed. It looked like a broken toy. Oh, hoopo, Haroon thought. I'm sorry I ever teased you about being only a machine. You're the best and bravest machine that ever there was, and I'll get your brain back for you. Just see if I don't. Is this like the Wizard of Oz? It's exactly what it sounds like to me. But he knew it was an empty promise because, after all, he had troubles of his own. They climbed on, then If, who was behind Haroon, stumbled badly, seemed on the verge of falling, and grabbed Haroon's hand, apparently to steady himself. Haroon felt the water genie pushing something small and hard into his palm. He closed his fist over it. A little emergency something, courtesy of P2C2E House, if whispered. Maybe you'll get a chance to use it. 
The Chippewas were ahead of them, and behind as well. What is it? Haroon muttered in his lowest voice. Bite the end off, if whispered, and it gives you two full minutes of bright, bright light. So it's called a bite light for obvious reasons. <laughs> Hide it under your tongue. What about you? Haroon whispered back. <clears throat> Have you got one as well? But If did not reply, and Haroon understood that the water genie had given Haroon the only such device he possessed. I can't take it. It's not fair, Haroon whispered. But now one of the Chippewas hissed at him so terrifyingly that he decided he'd better keep quiet for a while. Up, up, they climbed, wondering what the cult master had in mind. I do want to stop here and just say, like, this is, in any hero's journey, there's always this magical device, the ruby slippers in The Wizard of Oz, the lightsaber in Star Wars. I mean, you name it. In any story where there's a long journey, the hero gets this this special item that grants them significant power and is always used at exactly the right moment to to overcome the bad guy. That's so true. So so but he he doesn't take it or he take he doesn't want to take it, but he takes it. Yeah, he hides it under his tongue. Okay. It it seems like you know, maybe maybe he won't use it. Maybe this will be the story when the hero doesn't use the secret weapon to overcome the bad guy. They climbed past a row of portholes, and Haroon let out an astonished gasp, because pouring out of the portals came darkness, darkness glowing in the twilight the way light does from a window in the evening. The Chippewas had invented artificial darkness just as other people had artificial light. Inside the dark ship, Haroon guessed, there must be light bulbs, except they'd have to be called dark bulbs, producing this strange darkness so that the reversed eyes of the Chippewas, which would be blinded by brightness, could see properly, although he, Haroon, would be unable to see anything at all. Darkness you can switch on and off, Haroon marveled. What a notion, I swear. They reached the deck. Now Haroon realized just how enormous the ship was. In that dim light, it seemed that the deck was literally infinite. Certainly Haroon could not see clearly all the way to the bow, or indeed to the stern. It must be a mile long, he exclaimed. And if it was a mile long, then it was probably at least half a mile wide. Outsized, super colossal, big, if morosely agreed. Arranged in a sort of checkerboard pattern on the deck were great numbers of gigantic black tanks or cauldrons, each with its own team of maintenance operatives. Pipes and ducts led into and out of each of these, and there were ladders up their sides. Small mechanical cranes were positioned by each cauldron, too, with buckets hanging from maliciously sharp-looking hooks. Those must be the poison tanks, Haroon guessed, and he was right. The cauldrons were brimful of the black poisons that were murdering the ocean of stories, poisons in their most potent, pure, undiluted form. It's a factory ship, Haroon thought with a shudder and what it makes is far, far worse than the sadness factories back home. The largest object on the deck of the dark ship was another crane. This one towered above the deck like a tall building, and from its mighty arm Haroon saw immense chains descending into the waters. Whatever hung at the end of these chains, down below the ocean's surface, must indeed be of astonishing size and weight, but Haroon had no idea of what it was. What struck Haroon first about the dark ship and everything upon it was a quality of what he could only call shadowiness. In spite of the mammoth scale of the ship itself and the terrifying size and number of the poison tanks and the giant crane, 
Harun kept having the notion that the whole affair was somehow impermanent, that there was something not quite fixed or certain about it all, as if some great sorcerer had somehow managed to build the whole thing out of shadows, to give shadows a solidity that Harun had no idea they could possess. But this is all too fanciful for words, he told himself. A boat made out of shadows? A shadow ship? Don't be nuts. (laughs) But the idea kept nagging at him and wouldn't let go. Look at the edges of everything here, said a voice in his head. The edges of the poison tanks, the crane, the ship itself. Don't they look, well, fuzzy? That's what shadows are like. Even when they're sharp, they're never as sharp-edged as real substantial things. As for the Chapwalas, all of whom belonged to the Union of the Zipped Lips and were the cult master's most devoted servants, well, Harun kept being struck by how ordinary they were and how monotonous was the work they had been given. There were hundreds of them in their zipped lips, cloaks, and hoods, attending to the tanks and cranes on the deck, performing a series of mindless, routine jobs, checking dials, tightening joints, switching the tanks' stirring mechanisms on and off again, swabbing the decks. It was all as boring as could be, and yet, as Haroon kept having to remind himself what these scurrying, cloaked, weaselly, scrawny, sniveling clerical types were actually up to was nothing less than the destruction of the ocean of the streams of story itself. How weird, Haroon said to If, that the worst things of all can look so normal and, well, dull. That's an interesting concept. I think in yeah. life we expect, we expect the things that give us the biggest trouble to look different than the mundane, everyday people that we come in contact with. That it should be something scary or dangerous looking um, when sometimes it is just sort of the monotony yeah. that gets to us. Yeah, yeah. It's the, everyday, the everyday occurrences that, yeah, that throw us off the most frequently. Normal, he calls this if side. The boy is crazy. Bananas out to lunch. Their captors pushed them toward a large hatchway in which were set two tall black doors bearing the zipped lip symbol of Katamshud. All this was done in total silence except for the eerie hissing sound that the Chapwalas used instead of speech. And when they were a few feet away from the double doors, they were stopped and held by the arms. The double doors opened. This is it, Harun told himself. Through the doors came a skinny, scrawny, measly, weaselly, sniveling clerical type, Exactly like all the others, but also unlike, because as soon as he appeared, every Chipwalla in sight began to bow and scrape as energetically as possible. For this unimpressive creature was none other than the notorious and terrifying cult master of Bezabon, Katam Shud, the big boogeyman himself. That's him? Harun thought, with a kind of disappointment. This little minging fellow? What an anticlimax. What does that mean, anticlimax? Uh, well, if you see a movie and you come away from it thinking that it was anticlimactic, it's almost like there was no drama in it, right? Yeah. Like, it's sort of just disappointing, right? It's like, disappointing, and, like, something happens totally, you're expecting one thing to happen, and then it doesn't happen that way. Right. In a story where everything is so bonkers crazy, like they're on a second moon and there's a talking mechanical bird who only speaks through telepathy, it's weird that this is where they would go for the anticlimax. Yes. You know, like, you would expect something big. Um, but we see here that Katam Shud is just a normal little weaselly nerd. 
you know? clerical type. Yeah. A sniveling yeah, clerical a type. A sniveling clerical type. And that mirrors the revelation of the walrus. Mm, don't you think? Because yes, he's totally. just a bald dude with, with like a, a weird mustache. crappy mustache. A mustache that is described as looking like a dead mouse. <laughs> and these are the two, like, the Scary powerful villains. and villainous, like, it's weird, right? Um, interesting. Well, I'm not scared. Oh, no, no, no. Me neither. Me neither. Now came another surprise. The cult master began to speak. Katam Shud neither hissed like his minions nor croaked and gurgled like Mudra the Shadow Warrior, but spoke clearly in a dull, inflectionless voice, a voice nobody would ever have remembered if it hadn't belonged to so powerful and terrifying a personage. Spies, said Katam Shud dully. What a tiresome melodrama. A water genie from Gup City and something more unusual. A young fellow from, if I'm not mistaken, down there. So much for all your silence nonsense, said If with considerable courage. Oh. Isn't it typical? Couldn't you have guessed it? Wouldn't you have known? The Grand Panjandrum himself does exactly what he wants to forbid everyone else to do. His followers sew up their lips, and he talks and talks like Billy-O. I think that this is another interesting point. The do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do mm-hmm. villain here. Does that make you think of anything? Yeah, but I, I think this happens a lot. And, you know, we know that Rushdie is trying to create this, like, childlike story. And I think kids probably feel a lot of times that the adults in their lives are telling them one thing but doing another. Mm. I agree, Arch. Okay. Hey, buddy. I'm so glad that the band is back together. I know. This is awesome. This just feels right I on a know, rainy day right? to be reading her room with you, That's Mr. Right. Doyle. Oh, man. Okay. Katam should pretended to ignore these remarks. Hearn stared at him, looking particularly at the edges of the cult master's body, and finally he was sure. It was there, that same fuzziness, that wobbliness that he had spotted in the dark ship itself, shadowiness, he had called it. And he'd been right. No doubt about it, he decided. This is the cult master's shadow, which he learned how to detach. He has sent the shadow here and remains in the citadel of Chubb, where the guppy forces, along with Harun's father Rashid, must be heading even now. If he was right and this really was the shadow become human rather than the man-grown shadowy, then Katam Shud's sorcery was very powerful indeed, for the figure of the cult master was entirely three-dimensional with eyes moving visibly in its head. I never in my life saw such a shadow, Harun had to admit, but his conviction that it was indeed the cult master's shadow self that had come to the old zone in this dark ship continued to grow. The Chupwala who had removed but the hoopo's brain box, stepped forward and gave it to Katam Shud with a bow of the head. The cult master commenced tossing the little metal cube lightly into the air, murmuring, Now we shall see about their processes too complicated to explain. Once this is taken apart, I'll explain those processes. Never fear. So uh, he's threatening to spill the secrets of the world. What a villain. Just then, Haroon had a notion that made his head spin. Katam Shud reminded him of someone. I know him, he thought in utter amazement. I've met him somewhere before. It's impossible, but there it is. He's very, very familiar. The do, you co- know, do you know who he's met before? Do we know that? There have been a handful of characters that have had some similar traits, I feel like, over the course of, of the book, right? But sniveling, weaselly characters, that reminds me of Snooty Butt 2. And it also reminds me of Mr. Sengupta, the guy who, who ran off with Soraya back uh, in the first chapter. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. 
Let's see, let's see if Katam Shud's been pulling the strings all along. The cult master came over and peered into Harun's face. What brought you up here, eh? He asked in his dull, dull voice. Stories, I suppose? He said the word stories as if it were the rudest, most contemptible word in the language. Well, look where stories have landed you now. You follow me? What starts with stories ends with spying. And that's a serious charge, boy. No charge more serious. You'd have done better to keep your feet on the ground, but you had your head in the air. You'd have done better to stick to facts, but you were stuffed with stories. You'd have done better to have stayed at home, but up you came. Stories make trouble. An ocean of stories is an ocean of trouble. Answer me this. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? Ding, 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 ding. There's a, there's some repetition for us. Who said that originally? I think that was uh, Mr. Sengupta. I think that you are correct. So do you, so is this the same guy? Do you think? I do, but I did look ahead a couple lines this which I couldn't help myself. Hey, I man. got really excited. <laughs> I want to go back to this. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? I mean, I. I He's asking us that. He wants us to answer that. It's not just Katam should saying that to Haroon. It's sort of we need to ask ourselves that. So what is the um, what is the use of stories that aren't even true? Are you asking me? Yeah, or, I, or anyone. Yeah, well, there's so many uses of, of stories that aren't even true, whether it is teaching someone a lesson or sharing truths about the world or showing how how people or characters respond in certain situations um, or if it's just simply for entertainment. Right. And I think a Tom Shud is asking Haroon this question and it, Haroon's life in this time period is showing why stories that aren't true are important. So see, come on, tell me, tell me if it's really him. Confirm for me. Okay. Well, let's, let's see. I know you, Haroon shouted. You're him. You're Mr. Sengupta, and you stole my mother, and you left the fat lady behind, and you're a sniveling, driveling, mingy, stingy, measly, weaselly clerk. Where are you hiding her? Maybe she's a prisoner on this ship. Come on, hand her over. If the water genie held Haroon kindly by the shoulders, he was shaking with anger and other emotions, and if waited until he had calmed down. Haroon, lad, it's not the same guy, if gently said. Maybe he looks the same, a spitting image. The exact double, but believe me, boy, this is the cult master of Bezabon, Katam Shud. Katam Shud, in his clerky way, seemed quite unperturbed. His right hand continued absently to toss Butt the Hoopo's brain box into the air. Finally, he spoke in that droning, sleepy making voice of his. Stories have warped the boy's brain, he pronounced solemnly. Now he daydreams and spouts rubbish insulting, abusive child. Why would I have the slightest interest in your mother? Stories have made you incapable of seeing who stands before you. Stories have made you believe that a personage such as cultmaster Katam Shud ought to look like this. Harun and If both cried out in shock as Katam ah! Shud changed his shape. The cultmaster grew and grew oh, before boy. their appalled, astonished eyes until he was 101 feet tall. Oh, yeah. With 101 heads, each of which had three eyes and a protruding tongue of flame and 101 arms, 100 of which 
were holding enormous black swords, while the 101st tossed Butt the Hoopo's brain box casually into the air, and then, with a little sigh, Katam Shud shrank back into his earlier clerkish form. Showing off, he shrugged. Stories go in for such displays, but they're unnecessary and inefficient, too. Spies, spies, he mused. Well, you must see what you came to see. Though, obviously, you will not be able to make your report. He turned and began to slink back towards the black doors. Bring them, he commanded, and was gone. Chapwala soldiers surrounded Harun and Nif and pushed them through the doors. They found themselves at the head of a wide black flight of stairs, which disappeared down and away into the pitch blackness of the interior of the ship. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. We just had that whole conversation about how it was anticlimactic for him to be that small little weasel. Yeah. And then Rushdie sort of came back at us and was like, it's possible to be this gigantic, you know, monster. Yeah. But it's unnecessary. But it's unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. Okay. Um, let's take a quick break and figure out what our takeaway is. Takeaway. Take me away, Doyle. Okay, you got it. Our first takeaway is how much attention is paid to story structure and subverting your expectations when it comes to uh, taking in a story. So what I mean by that is Rushdie knows that when you read a story, you expect the climax to be the moment when, uh, when everything exciting sort of falls into place. But here, he specifically points out that it's anticlimactic. And plays with your expectations of of what's going to happen in that moment. He does the same thing earlier on when he introduces this magic bite light thing. And everybody reading the story should be saying to themselves, oh, this is that magical device that's ultimately going to save the day. Um, So he's he's teasing us in some ways, letting letting us know that... The story is following all of the regular tropes of a hero's journey, but then when we least expect it, he sort of pulls the rug out from under us. So I think my first takeaway, so takeaway number two, uh, builds off a little bit on what you're talking about, Mr. Doyle, and and we finally meet Katam Shud. Um, we've been waiting for him. We've been on this journey to find him. We meet him, and he is clerky and weasley and this scrawny, sniveling, little minging guy, <laughs> and <laughs> not at all what we expect, even though he turns into sort of that grand, uh, horrible-looking monster. He eventually goes back to the other size, the, the sniveling size, too. Yeah, he seems like a, like a nerd, right? Yeah. He's just like this nerdy guy. I know, who's bullying everyone around. Isn't that sort of the way, Mr. Doyle? It is, yeah. Because he's he feels insecure himself, and that's why he makes other people feel bad. Another thing that I like about the weird take on, um, on the villain here is that you don't really know where the truth is. Is he Mr. Sengupta? He looks like him, but it's not him. It's, it's unclear, you know? Like, it's... I, I feel like it's sort of... Nebulous. Yeah, and we've been in Haroon's head so much, and and he's he's Mr. Sengupta for Haroon, at least at this point. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that's what we're supposed to take away. The third takeaway I think is what this idea about climate change uh, that struck me in the in the middle of the chapter, and how it seems like the poor choices of these characters, humans, creatures, whatever they are, have impacted the stories. The way that the poor choices of humans. Um, have impacted our environment. Yeah. It hasn't been a focus of our conversations 
and that's interesting because it's all over the book, like the the dangers of pollution. Like it's a recurring theme in the book. So it's funny that like we haven't really talked too much about it. But it's it's definitely there, and I think that it's possible for you to read this book and for that to be like a major, major theme. All right. Another great chapter, another great episode of this podcast right here with my main man, Alex Doyle. That Mr. Doyle to you students, though. With my main man, Mr. Doyle. <laughs> oh, Arch, it's so good to have you back. I'm so glad. I'm never leaving again. Yeah, all right. So then I will see you in chapter 10, then. Sorry. Adios. <laughs>